you're thankful, give the Lord a hand this morning. All right. All right. We are continuing the book of Genesis, and uh, we'll be in chapter 25. But before we go there, I want to do just a little bit of review. There was a little girl in kindergarten, and everybody was kind of free drawing, whatever they wanted to draw. And the teacher's going around, and go, oh, Johnny, that's a nice little dog. And then she goes over to, hey, uh, hey, Megan, that's a beautiful little cat you got there. And then she goes over to one little kid, this little girl, and she can't tell what she's drawing. She goes, oh, what are you drawing there? And she goes, I'm drawing God. And she's like, well, honey, nobody's ever seen God. Nobody knows what he looks like. And then she goes, well, they will after I'm done drawing here. <laughs> and I'm hoping that after we get done with the book of Genesis, you got a better picture of what God is like, because we're seeing that he's pretty amazing through all this this uh, wonderful book of Genesis. And I want to do just a little bit of review before we read our scripture this morning. So just to kind of capsulize, in 11 chapters, God quickly covers 2,000 years of history, world history, covering basically billions of people and 2,000 years. And then it just, everything just slows down dramatically and Instead of 2,000 years, less than 300 years is covered in the lives of just four men, and it takes 39 chapters. You see the difference between the, the beginning of Genesis and the second half of Genesis, the first 11 versus the, first 30, the second 39? Who are those four men? Anybody to help me? Who are the four men that are going to be covered in, for the rest of Genesis? What's the first one? Abraham. The next two should be easier. Isaac. And Jacob, and then the fourth one is not what we call the patriarchs, but it spends a lot of time on him because he's one of the sons of the patriarchs. And who would that be? Joseph, very good. And let me just give you a little spoiler alert. Joseph is probably one of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. You'll see that in his life. In fact, very little is said about his sin. In fact, there's no specific sin mentioned about Joseph because he's a picture of Christ, although we do see a little bit of arrogance in his bragging about his dreams, but it doesn't say specifically it was wrong or right. But uh, the last week, I want to review something for you as well, just to get put today into perspective. Last week, we learned that Abraham represents God the Father. He was willing to sacrifice his only son. By the way, have, uh, anybody see the movie that came out this weekend, His Only Son? I've heard it's amazing. So if you get a chance to see it, it's in theaters for the next few days. Um, anyway, uh, but Isaac represents Jesus, God the Son, because he is willing to be sacrificed, and now he's in search of a bride. And then we see that the servant, Eliezer, it represents God the Holy Spirit. And you think, well, maybe that's a stretch. Well, let me, let me show you, as I did last week, in case you weren't here. Eliezer is the name of the servant, but he went the whole chapter without being named. And there's, there's a reason for that. And actually, I didn't elaborate that on, on that last week as much as I would have liked to, but I will this morning. Eliezer's name means God is our helper. God, our helper. And what did Jesus say about the Holy Spirit? The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So just as Abraham sent out Eliezer to find a bride for his son, God the Father sends out the Holy Spirit, the helper, to find a bride for his son Jesus. Which Who is the bride? In, in the Old Testament, it's Rebecca. In the New Testament, it's the church, right? We, we make up the bride of Christ. So last week, I, what I did, failed to mention was why it was important to note that the servant was unnamed. In John 16, it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, 
for he will not speak of his own authority. The Holy Spirit does not talk about himself or his power, or whatever. He's constantly pointing to God the Father and God the Son. And it goes on to say, it says, he will glorify me. Jesus says the Holy Spirit's job is to glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you, and all that the Father has is mine. When we went to, um, when we landed in Belgium on our way to Ghana, Africa for a mission trip, it was really cool that God created our layover to be in Belgium where we had another missionary. So we got to land about 5.15 in the morning. We, uh, the missionary came and met us at the airport, took us into downtown Brussels. We had Belgian waffles in Belgium. Okay, how cool is that? We drank black Russian coffee, and it was really good. And then we, before sunrise, or right around sunrise, we went into downtown Brussels. And if it looks like those buildings are golden, it's because they are. They are plated in gold. This, this city was built in the 12th century, built in 1200-something. And the outside of the buildings were plated in gold. And, of course, it was still dark, and so the spotlights were showing us how beautiful the buildings were. None of us walked around and go, wow, look at those amazing spotlights. Those spotlights are awesome. No, the spotlights helped us see the beauty of the building. And that is the job of the Holy Spirit. The Eliezer in, in, in last week's Genesis 24, he may, remains unnamed because the, the whole focus is on the Son and the Father. Now, it doesn't mean we never talk about the Holy Spirit, right? We're thankful for the Holy Spirit, amen? And, but churches tend to be at, go to extremes. Either like they never talk about the Holy Spirit at all, and they act like there's no gifts of the Holy Spirit, there's no miracles of the Holy Spirit. They don't talk about any of that. And then other churches go to another extreme. That's where all they talk about is the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit all the time. But if you look in the Bible, what Jesus says in the New Testament and what this chapter 24 says is the Holy Spirit's job is to do what? Put the spotlight on Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit's job is. So we want to keep that in balance. We don't want to be all of that, all we talk about is the Holy Spirit, and we, or we never talk about the Holy Spirit, but we put it in the same balance and perspective that the Bible does. So the servant, the helper, which is the Holy Spirit, is sent by the Father to speak to the bride about the Son and to invite her into a loving relationship with Him. That's what last week's story showed us. And Rebecca is us, the bride of Christ. Something that I didn't mention last week, though, that Sarah represents Israel. She produces the chosen one, and then she goes away, but will be resurrected later. And of course, Israel went away as a nation. They were scattered. And in 1948, God resurrected the nation of Israel, and she returns. And that's a picture of Sarah as well. So this relationship is initiated by the Father. It's carried out by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's consummated by the love of the Son and is received by the choice of the bride. It's such a beautiful picture. The Ten Camels we learned last week were the Ten Commandments. Because the, t the camels brought, right, the, the, the bride to the son. And so the camels are used by the servant to bring the bride to the son. And so the focus on the words bring and son in the New Testament says the law, the Ten Commandments, was our schoolmaster. And it brings us to the bride, to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So it's by the Ten Commandments you learn that, wow, I stink. <laughs> I'm a sinner. And you ride those ten camels, but here's Jesus, your Savior. He's your, he's your groom. So the servant gave also gifts to the bride. We see that, that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to the church. And the picture goes on and on. We could spend a long time on that. So today's scripture reader is Leah Nunley. Leah, come on up here. She's going to read for us. 
will be in Genesis chapter 25. And y'all y'all know who Leah's little boy is? Oliver, yeah, yeah. He's he's a great little guy. And then this is Leah's friend Chance. Here we go. Come on over here for me. And it will all be on that screen for you right there. All right. And there's I warned her that there's some hard names in here. So just don't laugh. Don't laugh. Okay, she's been practicing. Okay, here we go. Okay. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Zimran, Jokshan, Madan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Laomim. Yeah, hold it closer for me. There we go. The sons of Midian were Ephah, 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 Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. The field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Berlehairoi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, who Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Nebaioth, Eoth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbiel, Mibsam. Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jatur, Nafish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names. By their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aram Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So the Lord went to so she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when, he, when she bore them. 
When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Leah. I appreciate that. That was hard work there. Now, something we have to be aware of as uh, Westerners, as Americans, is what I call cultural snobbery. Many times when we hear things that are foreign to us, we think they're dumb, right? Um, I, I grew up under a dad who was an extreme racist. And whenever he'd hear people talking with a different accent or even in a different language, he just assumed that they were stupid. And it's like, how many languages do you speak, dad? You know, they're speaking English as best they can and then fluent in another language and you don't speak any language. I'm thinking all this stuff. I wasn't actually saying this to my dad because I didn't want to get backhanded. And uh, But the assumptions that we make is when we come across things that we don't understand, we think it's dumb. Kids do that a lot. Oh, this is stupid, you know. It's like, no, just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it's stupid. Trigonometry is not dumb. You are, okay. So just because you don't understand something, I'm being real blunt there. But anyway, but if we're not careful, we can be guilty of that when we come to the Bible. We come across a whole bunch of difficult names, worded very awkwardly, and like, what is this? This is dumb. And you don't realize this is someone's 23andMe. This is someone's genealogy. And yes, it's names from another culture, another time. It makes perfect sense to them. So if there seems some awkwardness or some weirdness or something that appears to be dumb, it's on our end, and we have to dig in and find out, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense where we're at in this, this situation. If you know me, you know one of my favorite things is I love trick plays in football. I used to coach high school football, and I was known for trick plays, and I love watching trick plays, like videotape of trick plays. And what, can somebody name for me, some of you football fans, what are some of the famous trick plays? Statue of Liberty, Fumble Ruski, right? Double reverse, flea flicker, right? All those things are great trick plays. And some of you women are going, what in the world? Don't say it's dumb just because you don't know, okay? But what's interesting is the greatest trick play in the history of football was not done on the field. It was called Operation Flagship. In the Washington, D.C. metro area, there were literally thousands of wanted criminals. And, of course, when... Police officers would go to serve warrants on a wanted criminal. That's a dangerous situation because you're on the outside, they're on the inside. You can't tell how many people are on the inside and how many have guns and what you're walking into. And they thought, what's a way we can get all the criminals to come out of their houses and come into our place? So what they did is they sent out invitations to all these criminals saying, hey, you've been invited to this big gala, and as a reward, you're going to win two tickets to the Super Bowl. And at that time, the Washington Redskins were the hottest team in football, so everybody wanted tickets to that game, and so the Redskins were going to play the Bengals in the Super Bowl, and so they had this big gala and they, at this hotel in the ballroom, and they invited, they had mascots dressed up, 
but it was really secret service, um, uh, um, sorry, marshals, U.S. marshals in the costumes. The marshals were dressed up as cheerleaders. They were dressed up as everything. And they're welcoming all these criminals in. They have all sit down. And then they shut the doors. And they say, stand up, everybody. You're all under arrest. And they arrested 112 people that day who were suckered into this trick and got arrested. And it was really interesting to watch there. They walked in here. That, and they're called Flagship International Sports TV, which was actually an acronym for FIST, which was Federal Investigation Something's Whatever. But they renamed it to all this right here. And so here's all these people being arrested by U.S. Marshals on that day. And it was a great trick play. Well, Esau and Jacob are going to be involved in a trick play here. Okay? And you're, we're going to learn about that here in a second. Um, but I'm going to divide the chapter up into four natural categories. There's life after 137 for Abraham. Uh, there is sand and stars. You'll figure out why. You know why I named that. The struggle is real. And then it's just stew. It's just stew. So there's our four points this morning. This morning. So Abraham took another wife. Now picture this. Abraham is 137, and then, and then he gets married a little bit later. And imagine that eHarmony profile, you know, SJM, single Jewish male, 137, available, multimillionaire, you know, uh, and all that, what that profile says, hmm, 137-year-old guy, that sounds interesting, you know, who goes looking for that? But he marries this lady named Keturah, which is interesting because her name means perfume. That's all we know about her and her kids. And she bore him a child, a whole bunch of children, okay? Well, you think of Abraham only having that one son, Isaac. And we say, oh, yeah, that's right. He had Ishmael, too. But then he had even more. So he had a total of eight sons that we know of. What was interesting is when God told Sarah, you're going to have a child, she said, me, I'm after the year of the way of women. And she also said, and Abraham, you know, he's old, too. She acted like he wasn't able to do that because of whether infertility or impotence or whatever. She didn't think he was able, but here's Abraham many years later, and he's having more kids. Now, does that mean God healed him when that happened? Maybe so. And if God heals people, the healing lasts. So we don't know exactly what's going on here, but Abraham's still producing children. And then Jokshem fathered these people here. I want you to notice something interesting. What do you know about Hebrew? When a word ends with I am, what does that mean? It's plural. So I don't know what this actually means, but it's not just Asher, it's the Asherim. And it's not this guy named Latush, it's the Latushim, and the Lumen, Lum, and then Lumim. So he's talking about not just a man, but the group of people that came out of that. Just thought I'd throw that trivia out there for you. And then the sons of Midian. What we know later is Midian, later Moses will get in a struggle with an Egyptian, and what will happen? He'll kill the guy, whether it's manslaughter or murder, we don't know how, we'll cover that later. But then he flees to Midian. He flees these people who are, were descendants of Abraham. And then it, here this verse makes it short. It says, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Now, this is not the normal cultural way. We know about primogenitor. If a man had five sons, he would divide everything into six parts, give two parts, a double portion to one son, and then give the rest to the other son. Um, sometimes other cultures, they divide up differently where they get half to the oldest son and then take the other 50% and divide it amongst the rest of the kids. Two ways of doing it, but e either way, it was a double portion of some way, somehow they, the oldest son got more. That was the way of uh, adding life to the family business, keeping the family name so that when the father passed on, the oldest son already knew everything and knew how to delegate to the younger ones and he had more resources to do that. But 
The fact that he gave all to his son Isaac, who's Abraham a picture of? The father. Who's Isaac a picture of? The son. And what does Jesus say? All things have been handed over to me by my father. So the picture continues here, that Jesus gets everything from his father. But to the sons of the concubines, and again, we have to understand the difference between descriptive and prescriptive. Just because the Bible describes something doesn't mean it is prescribing it. It's When you see men with multiple wives or concubines, it's not recommending it. In fact, what do you see? It's very, very clear that this always is bad. <laughs> Every time a husband takes an extra wife, it's like bad news, bad news, bad news. Whether it's Solomon or David or Abraham. And of course, there was men in the Bible who didn't do that, and they seem more blessed because of it. So the Bible makes it very clear that God's intention from the beginning was one man, one woman for one lifetime. And of course, then there's prohibitions all throughout the Bible against adultery. Okay, But because, peop because people have their imperfections shown in the Bible, doesn't mean the Bible's recommending these things. There's all kinds of cults and weird people who will point to this and use this as a justification for polygamy. It's not doing that. Look at the consequences of the life and you'll see that it's not the case. So Abraham, it says he gave gifts to all these other sons. And this same word gifts is also translated in the Bible, bribes. These weren't like gifts. These were small because it says he gave all, pretty much virtually all to Isaac. So everything else was just token amounts. It wasn't even enough to even add up. And then he sent them away, which is a really weird practice that Abraham seems to have. What, who did he send away previously? Hagar, and then later Hagar and Ishmael. Abraham has this bad habit, this sinful habit of, if I don't want to deal with something, i just get rid of it. Just go away. And when he sent away Hagar and Ishmael the last time, even though he's a millionaire, what does he send them away with? A skin of water. Here, see you. Bye. And of course, dehydration was a major factor, and they almost both died if it wasn't for the rescue of the angel of the Lord in this situation. So God was watching out for them, even though Abraham wasn't. He has this habit of sending people away. And you, you, know, you know people do that? They just If you have a little friction between them, they just unfriend you. They just block you. They ghost you. They don't, they don't, want, to, they don't even want to deal with the problem anymore. And Abraham has this same sinful habit. He, he doesn't want to deal with the issue. And what's interesting, he said, from it, he sent them away, not from him, but from his son Isaac. He knows he's going to depart from the scene eventually, and he wants them away where they're not causing trouble for his son Isaac. And which direction does he send them? Eastward to the east country. It's being redundant on purpose. Adam and Eve, when they were kicked out of the garden, which way did they go? East. Cain, when he fled from God's judgment, which way did he go? East. When God told all the people that will be going to all the earth to be fruitful, multiply. What did they, where did they build the Tower of Babel? They went east. Everywhere in the Bible you see, almost for, without exception, you see something going east. It's, it's going away from God. West is young. Throwback here, 1980s, Michael W. Smith song, Go West, Young Man. Have you ever heard of that? Remember that song? I don't know oh, Rob, okay, thank you, Rob. There we go. So it, it says, Go West, Young Man, when evil goes east. So it's picking up on that same theme. So it's interesting, it says, these are the days of the years, sounds like a soap opera, the days of the years of Abraham. It means like when we say day, it's not talking about a little 24-hour day, it's here, it's talking about, oh, back in my day, you know, this is the generations, this is the time of Abraham. He, he lived 175 years, and then he breathed his last. It's a nice way of saying that he passed away, 
And then, what, describing his life, it says he, had a, he was at a good old age. Abraham was not suffering at age 73, 74, 75. He lived his fullest up until he died. And that's a great way to go, right? And it says he was full of years, which means his life was very full. It wasn't empty. Did he have failures? Yeah, he had failures. We all do. But overall, he could look back on his life and say, you know what? I lived a good life. I was blessed by the Lord. In fact, Proverbs 90, or Psalm 91 says, because he holds, this is David speaking, and I think he's, this words could apply to Abraham. It says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So the length of, of life can vary for different people. And, you know, it, in Proverbs, there's what we call axiomatic sayings, means they're generally true. Like if you live righteous, you'll live long, and the fools, fools die young. We both know exceptions to those. We don't, both know exceptionally really good people who died young. And we both know people who smoke and drank every day of their life and cursed like a sailor, and they're 102 years old, right? Or maybe not all. We don't know all the people that. But, but we both know it, exceptions to the rule. So in general, these things are true. But a long life can be cut short but still be a full life. And that's what Abraham had both in this situation. And it says, and he was gathered to his people. And then later it'll say, he was buried in the next verse. So gathered to his people is not describing the burial. He died, he went to his people, and then his body was buried. This backs up what Paul says in the New Testament, to be absent from the body is to be where? Present with the Lord. So people say, well, where do you go when you die? Your spirit goes immediately to eternity. Now, if you know Christ as your Savior, you're gathered with God's people. And Abraham was gathered with his people. If you don't know Christ, then you go out in eternity, separated from God for all eternity. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. So it's interesting. Abraham's a major character in the Bible. He's mentioned 70 times in the New Testament. New Testament's a much shorter uh, covenant, okay? 70 times he's mentioned. Who's mentioned more? What other Old Testament heroes mentioned more than Abraham? Who would you guess? Moses, yes, exactly. 80 times Moses is mentioned. 70 times, one for every member of the Sanhedrin, and then Moses even taking him farther. Um, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. So Abraham, the biggest hero of the Jewish people, and Moses, and Jesus says, I'm better than both of them. He said, before Abraham was, I, I am, and, because, and then something greater than Moses is here, referring to himself. So Isaac and Ishmael, his sons buried him. Now, don't just skim through the Bible quickly. Isaac and Ishmael, did these guys like each other? No, they didn't like each other. In fact, Ishmael, why was Ishmael kicked out? Because he was mocking Isaac at his weaning party, okay, which we all celebrate sometime soon. Ishmael is mocking him. He's cast out. He almost dies in the process of being cast out. Somehow they get word to Ishmael, Abraham has died. Abraham comes home. I mean, Ishmael comes home. Him and Isaac are able to work together to have a funeral. That says a lot. If any two, two guys had reason not to work together to have a funeral to pay respect to their dad, it was these two guys. Ishmael could say, man, you got everything. I got nothing. I almost died out there in the wilderness because of you. you know, I should, I'm the firstborn son, and what did I get? Nothing. 
and you got everything, but yet these guys are able to pull it together. There's a lot we can learn from this. This is going to happen to you in your lifetime. Someone you love, someone in your family is going to pass away. Can I, let me give you some, just some words of advice just from my experience and more importantly from biblical experience. Be the peacemaker as much as possible. A lot of times funerals bring the guy back together people who haven't been speaking in months or years and a funeral is no time to air out your dirty laundry. Be the peacemaker. Be the bigger person. Be the one to say hello first. Be the one to shake hands. Do whatever. You, give out the hug. Even if it's not deserved because when is it ever deserved? Grace is when you give people what they don't deserve. Number two, set your family differences aside to work together to honor the deceased. Don't, this is not time for your drama. This is not time for you to bring up what bothered you and what was said at the funeral reunion that offended you and hurt your feelings or whatever. It's, a, it's not about you. It's about the person in the casket that you're trying to pay respects to. Try not to assume anything. Don't think because they came in looking a certain way that they're mad at you. Maybe they're just sad that someone died. But others probably will. Be prepared for that. But try not to assume anything in that situation. Delay all discussions about who gets what for a later time. Funeral's not the time to discuss that stuff. People will do it. It's people that you love, siblings, aunts, uncles, people that you thought were the nice people were all of a sudden was like, well, am I going to get the table? My mom promised me the table. And I, you know, I always wanted that table, and I got my initials carved under that table. It's like, would you shut up about the table? You know, Save those discussions for later, if you all possible. Somebody's going to bring it up. Don't let it be you. And then, most importantly, see this as an opportunity to serve your family. Again, don't worry about your hurt feelings or what you wish would have happened or how strained the relationship was with the deceased, all that stuff. This is an opportunity to serve others in that. And of course, what's that Benjamin Franklin's ancient saying? An ounce of prevention is what? Worth a pound of cure. Take care of business before you die. Get a will. Get a DNR statement or whatever you have to do. Get all those things covered before you die. Abraham is doing all this. Abraham is passing out the inheritance. He's giving the gifts. He's saying, you guys take this and go away. Whatever. Here's your Proctor Silas toaster. Here's your parting gift. Thanks for being a contestant today. Move on on the road. He's telling them to do, take care of all this stuff. When? Before he's dead. He's trying to keep the peace in the situation because he's the one who's caused all this mess. He's the one that should have only one son from whom there should be 12 tribes of Israel. Or, but he's the one that's causing this problem because him and Sarah compromised here and because he has concubines here and he has all that problems. He's the one that caused the mess. At least give him credit for he's trying to fix it now. So where were they bur- where did they bury him? In the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron. And the east of Mamre, okay, Mamre was the place of seeing where God sees us, okay? And then um, this is the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And again, they didn't go back to Ur. They wanted to stay there in the promised land, so they'll be resurrected in the promised land. So now we're going to talk about sand and stars. Why? Because God promised Abraham, your seed will be like the sand of the seas and the stars of the heaven. So many that you can't count them all. And of course, we know now today that worldwide there are Jews more than can be counted. And so that God blessed Isaac, his son, okay? And Isaac settled in this area, which means the well of the living. But then it says the generations of Ishmael, of Hagar, the Egyptian. She's still known as the Egyptian. 
and God honors this mistake, if you will, this result of sinful behavior. Okay, again, there are no such things as accidental children. There are accidents, but all children are one and are ordained of God. So God honors Ishmael. He promised him because he's seed Abraham. He's going to bless them. So he becomes 12 tribes as well. And so you'll see 12 tribes listed there. So it's interesting. Isaac doesn't have 12 tribes. Ishmael has them first. And you will see that people who are living away from God may get what they want before you do. And that's why the Bible says, fret not because of evildoers. You know, don't be frustrated because they're succeeding in life. You need to not uh, be envious of that. And then it says, these are the sons of Ishmael. And their names, their villages, their encampments, their tribes. So this is very specific to them. It's a concentric circles in the way that they're being described and the, the 12 princes. But then it says Ishmael breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. Does that sound familiar? He's using the same language he just used to describe the death of Abraham. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I want to believe that because of the way this is described, Ishmael was a believer. Again, he made lots of mistakes. He went a different direction. But the fact that he was gathered to his people may be a clue that he also was gathered to Abraham, and he's in Abraham's bosom, as Jesus describes it. They settled in from Havilah to Shur, which is the opposite Egypt, uh, opposite Egypt in direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Now, that, that language is super familiar because God told Abraham, hundreds of years prior to that, he prophesied this is where Ishmael would end up. And Ishmael fulfills the prophecy that he says she'll dwell over against all his kinsmen. So exact word for word. And of course, God is showing once again, he's in control of everything. People have free will to choose and move wherever they want. Ishmael chose that direction, but God said way before, decades before, that this is where he would go. We come to the third point. The struggle is real. The struggle is definitely real. So Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Does that sound familiar? Who else was barren? Sarah was. Now, in each case, it wasn't the male thing passing on bad DNA. It's two wives that are not related. So it's God that's in control, not the genetics. And it's interesting, of course, Isaac prays and God grants the prayer. Now, that's a good thing, okay? Um, husbands, what is your wife's greatest need? I hope you know. Maybe you can ask. What is your wife's greatest need? For right now, for Rebecca, she is a childless woman in a world that honors children and that honors women who give birth to children. So she is considered low on the totem pole of society because she is not given birth. They've been married for how long? Anybody remember? 20 years now, and she's not conceived. This is her greatest need. Men, do you know your wife's greatest need? 20 years after they were married. And so let me back up for just a second. Let me encourage you men, pray for your wives. For many things, but especially for this greatest need. But my question to Isaac is, what took so long? When did God answer the prayer? It says, Isaac prayed, God answered. So 20 years he hasn't been praying for her? What does James tell us? You have not because you ask not. I'm wondering, did it take Isaac? I mean, is he that slow that it took 20 years? Oh, you know what? Maybe I should pray that we have a child because this thing, this whole thing about a Messiah depends on them. She doesn't have a child. This whole thing stops right here. 
Okay? Satan's been trying to stop it from the beginning of time with all kinds of things, and it could stop right here. Hey, I got a good idea. Why don't I pray for my wife that she has a child? And God says, bingo, here you go. And so don't wait to pray for your wives, man. So Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, and of course she gives birth when she's 60. So 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, to the Aramean of Padam Aram, and the sister of Laban. Remember, he's the bad guy that we'll see later. And the children, how many, what did, what did Isaac pray for? A child. What did God give him? Two. Now, the first time there was two sons, right? Okay, we have Isaac and Ishmael. There shouldn't have been two then. There should have been only one. Why was there two? Because Sarah and Abraham had this stupid idea to, to fulfill God's plan for them because God evidently was too busy. So there was a struggle then because of their interference. But this time, why is there a struggle this time between two? Yeah, who, who caused this problem? God did. So sometimes things we struggle with are because of our own doing and our foolishness. And sometimes there's things we struggle with that's because of God's providence. Don't think that struggle is always a result of sin. God brings struggle. God's the one who ordained twins. If you have twins, you know, whatever gender you're kid, it's all in God's providence in that situation. And these children struggled together within her. Now, this wasn't your normal twins, okay? In fact, a lot of twins, they begin that symbiotic relationship prenatal. But these guys were at war prenatal. It, this word struggle means they're like wrestling in a womb. And she's like, ow, this is really uncomfortable. What's going on in here? In fact, she asked, the, evidently she asked about the women in the village about it. You'll see here in just a second. Abraham and Sarah complicated matters by bringing a second son in the situation. But here it is God who complicates things by bringing a second son into the situation. So these children struggle. And she said, if it is thus. So she's, some Hebrew scholars think that what she's saying is she's asking people, is this normal? Is this normal? And all the moms are going, no, I've had twins before. And that's not normal. I'm seeing like kicking and punching going on. And, you know, you have, oh, she, the child kicked. Oh, that's neat. That, that was like boom, 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 boom. You know, it's going on all over the place here. Hey, by the way, anybody in here had twins? You've had twins, right? Okay, good. Did, you, did, did they wrestle? <laughs> no, but you had kicks going on, but not like this, right? Not like this. So they were pretty peaceful. They got along well. And so here she's like, hey, but is it supposed to be the way? And they're like, no. So if it's this way, why is it happening to me? Which a lot of times in life we think when bad things happen, well, why is it happening to me? As if it shouldn't be happening to anybody else, as if you're above it happening to you. But that's a whole other discussion for another sermon. She said, if it's not this way, if this is not the, this is the way you could paraphrase it. If this is not the way it normally goes, then why is it happening to me? We expect normal. We shouldn't. <laughs> life isn't always normal. Life is meant to have struggles. Life is meant to be difficult in many ways until we get to heaven where all difficulties are taken away. But don't. there's two things you should be prepared for. Number one, that struggles will come. And number two, they will come to you. Don't think that somehow it's not supposed to happen to you. Things happen to everybody. So she went to inquire of the Lord. Give, give her credit here that she takes that problem. instead. Of, she, she's complaining about it, but she takes her complaint to who? She takes her complaint to the Lord. Philippians 4, 6. If you're an anxious person, you need this verse. And we all can be anxious at times. I know last year I was struggling with a lot of things. And this verse I just kept quoting and quoting and quoting over and over again. In fact, let's all read this aloud together. You ready? Let's read, let's read this for yourself and encourage one another. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is what Rebecca does. She's like, I'm anxious. This is bothering me. Why is this happening to me? But you know what? I'm going to pray, and I'm going to let that request be made known to God. Prayer is the solution for anxiety. It's not medication. I'm not saying you should never take medication, but it shouldn't be your first resource. Prayer is your resource. And as you know, it is impossible for the human brain to be thankful and anxious at the same time. It's impossible. When you start telling God everything you're thankful for in a situation, and of course in this situation, you're praying and thanking God in advance that he's going to what? Answer. I'm thankful, Lord, you hear my prayer. I'm thankful that you knew this problem was coming before I did. And I'm thankful that you've got a solution for this. And I trust you that solution is coming. So I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit's comfort in the situation. And you just keep thanking God and thanking God and thanking God. And then anxiety does this and just disappears. So, and you know what? Ten minutes later, that anxiety can come right back. And guess what you do ten minutes later? You start praying again. You have to pray your way through this thing. And the Lord said, hey, this is bigger than two babies wrestling. This is two nations. Two types of people, two peoples or types of people are within you. And these people are divided. Already prenatal, these people are at war and they always will be. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. That's backwards. Usually the youngers always serve the eldest, the older brother, the primogenitor situation. And it says, and when her days to give birth were completed. Behold, behold, well, look at that. So who was this surprised to? I don't think she told Isaac. God told her, you're going to have twins. I don't think she told Isaac. It's like, oh, behold, look at that, twins. So I think this was, we had this situation of family here because remember Sarah was surprised that she was going to give birth even though Abraham always told, was told in a dream. So here's the twins in her womb. The first came out red, okay? And this word red here means like he's like hairy red, okay? Um, and his body is like, like a hairy cloak. And so they called his name Esau, which means rough or rugged. And then afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding his heel. That's what the word Jacob means. It means heel gripper. You know, you ever like run in a race and you run behind somebody? All you have to do is like hit their foot and they go like that and they fall. You ever done that to anybody? Yeah. Okay. Not lately, right? Fifth grade, right? Okay. And so that's this kind of guy. And this also, this whole image of the heel, what is that a hyperlink to? Back to the garden. You know, that the serpent will bruise your heel and you shall crush his head. So this is someone who's going to act in a snake-like deceiving way. And Jacob, now, I don't think, I, I'm, I wrestled with this and I was reading different commentaries on what people thought about this. Did they really want to name your son deceiver, trickster? Or was this just a clever, cute name? Like, hey, he's the kid who grabs the heel, you know? I think, it, I think it was like a fun way. I do think in the big picture, it was meant to be, hey, this guy's not going to be trustworthy, and yet I'm going to use him anyway. So Isaac was 60 years down when she born. So 20 years of married, got married at 40, prays at 60 or 59, and then, 20, and then she has this child 20 years after they've been married. So when the boys grew... And this is, it says the boys, so they're still now, they're, they're not children, but they're teens. In fact, you'll see here later, if you do the math on the genealogies, they were both 15 years old. Esau was a skillful hunter. 15 years old, he's already mastered the bow, a man of the field, and Jacob was a quiet man. Now, 
some people read this way too much. I think I've been guilty of this. Is like, this guy is a macho man and he's a mama's boy. I don't know that you can get that out of this because the word quiet here, it's the same word used of Job saying he was a righteous man. It's just saying he was a good man, and dwelling in tents doesn't mean he was always a stay-at-home. What are, what are Bedouins? They're men who dwell in tents, and they even make tents, and they travel around. So one guy was fixated on hunting, which he didn't need to be. They had already cattle and herds and all that stuff. They had plenty to eat. Esau was hunting because he wanted to, because he, he wanted to make a different career out of it. Jacob stayed with the family business of being a Bedouin and a herdsman and, and cattle and sheep. So Isaac is a jerk here. Okay? I'll just put it bluntly. He loved Esau because he ate of his game. Man, I really like that venison you bring home, son. Why don't you bring me some more of that? And he obviously showed preferential treatment to this son because of something as silly as food. And you'll see that his son will pay for that later. What is he going to do? He's going to sell his birthright because of food. Well, here Isaac's selling his love based on food. And then it says, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Now, I don't think she's being the honorable one because if she was being the good mom in the situation, it says, but Rebecca loved both Isaac and or Esau and Jacob. But it says, no, she as a reaction, oh, you're going to love that one? I'm going to love this one. Hmm, see there? I think this is family dynamics where overcompensating for something that somebody else is doing. I've seen this happen so many times where like a 16-year-old in the family becomes a rebellious punk, so the 14-year-old starts making straight A's. And then the 16-year-old gives their heart to Jesus, and they, they start flying straight, so the 14-year-old starts failing. I've seen that happen in families. It's the weirdest thing how people compensate in different directions, not necessarily right or wrong, but they just do. Um, and here, Rebecca is compensating. She should have said she loved them both. And it doesn't even say she loved Jacob because you make such good tents. You know, it wasn't even that. She's just like, oh, you're going to love him? Well, I'm going to love him then. And, of course, mama's boy maybe somewhat of that, but, you know, going with the younger one. Who knows what's going on here? But let me tell you this, parents. This is no joke. Playing favorites will kill your family. You can, if you are walking with the Lord, honestly say you love all your children the same. Maybe not in the same way, because they're all unique, so you love them uniquely, but you love them all the same as far as the amount of love, all that you would give. You would die for any one of them, I, I would hope. So, Life after 137, sand and stars, the struggle is real. That brings us to the fourth point. It's just stew. It's just stew, okay? This is what's so hilarious about this story. Jacob and Esau are approximately 15 years old when this happens, if you add up with the genealogies. And once Jacob, once Jacob was cooking stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. You could insert in the word there, famished, okay? He, hunting has not gone successfully. So he hasn't cooked anything this week. He, who knows how long he's been out hunting? You know, a lot of men go hunting for a weekend. Imagine not eating for a weekend. And he comes in, he's famished. But he's home now. There's certainly there's other food somewhere in one of these tents, somewhere. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew. In Hebrew, it's red, red. Let me eat some of that red, red. Okay, You know how we, we say words twice to emphasize like what we mean, we say, well, I have to go into work, but not really at work work, you know. Or we took a vacation, but it really wasn't a vacation vacation. Or this week, I'm, I'm on a diet, but it's not really a diet diet, you know. We say, have you had anything to eat? Well, I didn't really eat eat. You know, I just snacked on something. So we double words sometimes the same way. And here, it's the same thing as red, red. I mean, this is like red, red stew. It's lentil stew probably. In fact, it says lentils later. 
He said, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was Edom, okay? That they eventually, his nickname became Red. Anybody know anybody named, nicknamed Red? Dr. Red Duke, I guess. Maybe that's the last one you might remember. Um, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Why don't you tell us what you really think, Jacob? He just, no subtleties, no warming up. Hey, how was hunting, whatever. It's like, hey, I want your birthright, and I want it now. Jacob sees something in his brother, how impetuous, how impulsive Jacob is, and he's ready to pounce on him for this. And Esau said, I'm about to die. So what use is that birthright to me? And it, this is like the most low IQ statement you could probably ever make. He said, no, swear to me now. I mean, Jacob's persistence in this is, is, is so blatant here. He said, so he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. By the way, this wasn't something that could be sold. Uh, it's really weird, the whole situation. And God had already promised that the younger would be served by the older. So Jacob's trying to get something that was already going to be his. We do that sometimes, don't we? God promises us things, but we want them when? We want them, we want them now. So then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. What did he ask for? Stew. And he gave him more than he asked for. He wants to sweeten the pot, you know, make sure it ensure against any buyer's remorse in this situation. And he ate, and he, and he drank, gave him something to drink too. And he rose, he just went his way. And I used to read this as, an, and therefore after this, like sour grapes, he despises his birthright. But it says thus. In other words, this is the way he showed that he had no respect for his birthright. He just totally despised it. He didn't even appreciate what that position that he was in. Hebrews gives us a commentary on, on Esau. And it's encouraging us that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. That's really interesting. Did Esau just commit a sexual sin? Was stu some type of code word for something else? No. But there's a, a parallel or a correlation between sexual immorality and being impulsive and unholy. Because the same person who would give in, sell everything for a bowl of stew, would also cash it in for a night of pleasure, for a moment of immorality, for a moment. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against sex. Sex is amazing. It's wonderful. It's a great gift from God, but it has a time and a place and a person it's supposed to be with. But we tend to take that sports car off-road and destroy it because we want to go where we want to go with it. And God's saying, hey, that kind of thinking, like Esau, will make you sexually immoral to where you're just like, well, I want what I want. I don't care about my future. I just want what I want right here, right now. Let's talk about this. This is an important story here. It's talking about temptation and our flesh. And by our flesh, I don't mean just the meat. I'm talking about that sinful part of us that wants what it wants, when it wants it. That, that sinful part of us. There's two, um, two natures in us. That's the word I'm looking for. Two natures. We have the nature. We are partakers of the divine nature. First Peter chapter 1 tells us that if the Holy Spirit lives in us. We are partakers of that divine nature. Christ in you, the hope of glory. But there's still this sinful flesh and those two will be wrestling. And that's what this is a picture of. Rebecca is carrying two lives inside of her that are wrestling. And that's a picture of the believer. That you have two natures inside of you that are wrestling that do not get along and will not get along until Christ takes us home. And we only have one nature then. And the sinful nature is buried. So let me give you some, some words of advice here. 
I could make a much longer list, but let me, I picked out a few. Spiritual weakness and physical weakness are a deadly combination. You see, Esau was already a spiritually weak character. But then it was combined with being physically weak, and he was done. You see, Esau, if he was full, and he had had a great weekend hunting, and he said, hey, sell me your birth right now. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm selling you nothing. He would have been fine. But because he was spiritually weak and physically weak, he was vulnerable. You ever get that way? You're really tired and bite at somebody. You're, you, you've had a really rough week and you snap back at your spouse. You've had a, a really rough month at work and then you're tempted to compromise on the books or your numbers. When we're in situations where we're spiritually weak and we're tired, hungry, fatigued, worn out, that's a deadly combination. Beware. I have evenings like that where I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I'm like, you know what, I just need to go to bed. I'm not going to say anymore. I don't need to do anymore. I just need to get to just be quiet as long as possible until my head hits a pillow, and then I'll be fine because I know right now I'm not strong. And we need to be aware of those times. Number two, our flesh exaggerates our bad circumstances. Was Esau really about to die? No. But yet, that's what the flesh tells you. Oh, you're 28 years old. You're never going to get married. Come on, really? Nobody marries after 28, right? You know, but we are flesh. You know, I'll never find another job. I have to take this job. I know I'll never see my family on weekends again, or it doesn't pay what I wanted to pay, or I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing, but I'll never find another job. What does our flesh do when we're in a difficult situation? It exaggerates, it lies, and just distorts everything. We say things like, nobody understands what I'm going through. Nobody, really. Nobody's ever been through that. I had to. I had no choice. Really, you had no other choices. You, you just had to go ahead and lie. You had no choice. Okay. Uh, I was desperate. Well, we, we all find ourselves in this situations. doesn't mean we make dumb decisions. Um, so number three, our flesh not only does it exaggerate bad circumstances, it minimizes the things of God. What did he have? He had the birthright. He had at least half of everything of a multimillionaire family going to him. It's like, ah, pff, whatever. Sour grapes, whatever you want to call it. Number four, our flesh will always think short term. Was Esau thinking of his future? Was he thinking of even tomorrow, let alone a week from today? He was only thinking about the moment. And that's, you know, that's what the word secular means. People think secular means without God. It doesn't. It means nowism. It means thinking about now, here and now. It doesn't think about eternity. Christianity teaches you, think about eternity. Think about the future. Where, what will this do for me in heaven? What will this do when I stand before Christ? Who will be in heaven because I do this? Who won't be there if I make these dumb decisions? Christianity is thinking about the future. Secularism is like, no, what's here, the here and now is all that matters. And that's what your flesh will do. It's like, oh, go ahead and eat the bluebell. Start the diet tomorrow, right? And that's a small thing, but we do it in much bigger and worse ways. Everybody say it with me. It's just still. Next time Satan tempts you or your flesh tempts you with something pitiful and small, just say, it's just stew. So let me give you some things about how not to sell out for stew. First of all, hide God's word in your heart. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. The best prevention 
to sinning against God is having a biblical principle in, in your heart that is yelling louder than the temptation is. Okay? When you have verses of Scripture in your mind and like that, you know, be angry and sin not, and you're like, oh, you know what? I, I don't have to sin. I don't have to say it just because I'm mad. You have Scriptures rolling around your head. Romans 13, 14. Here's another principle for you. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Okay? So let's say you're starting a diet tomorrow and there's a box of something in the, in the cupboard that's not good for you. Don't say, well, I'm going to keep that for the grandkids. No, you're not. It'll be gone by tomorrow afternoon. Throw it in the trash can. Walk it over to the neighbor. Hang it on their doorknob. Get it out there. Okay? And it, so if you're a smoker and you're trying to quit, don't keep a, the box of marbles, lights for, for your uncle who's going to see you at the next family reunion. Burn them. Throw them in the trash can. Why would you want to pass down that carcinogen to somebody else? Anything that's in your life, when you're feeling strong, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Start deleting apps, deleting apps. Put filters on. Whatever you got to do. Because then when you're weak, like, man, I wish I hadn't done that. That's why you're glad when you were strong that you did. Okay? So make no provision for the flesh. Proverbs 16.6 says, By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. And you know what fear of God means? It means to be aware of His presence. If you realize, and you've heard me say this a million times, if Jesus is sitting right here next to me, how can I go to that website? If Jesus is sitting right here next to me, how can I wave the number one symbol of the driver next to me out of road rage? Okay. If Jesus is sitting right next to me, how am I going to talk to Tammy? You see, if I really fear the Lord, I know that He is with me always, watching the good and the evil. It makes me depart from stupid things. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. Sin always gives you more than you bargain for in situations to sweeten the deal. And he ate and drank and rose and he went away and thus he despised his birthright. He despised his birthright because he compromised his living for the moment. But you know, people despise a whole lot of other things. Some people despise their marriage. In a moment of weakness and temptation, they despise their marriage and they throw it all away just for one moment of pleasure. Some people despise their purity. You've, God has created your virginity, your purity, your eyes, whatever you want to call it. And you're going to despise that purity that God has given you for one moment of pleasure. Some people compromise and despise their whole reputation. And they risk everything just to get out of a situation. Some people despise their family. Their kids will suffer. There will be a divorce. There will be all kinds of things because of you giving in to a bowl of stew. Some people despise their future. Like, hey, I don't care. I'm just living for now. So now you're not going to go to college. You're not going to do all kinds of things because of stupid decisions right now. But let me tell you the worst thing you can despise out of all that, and that's your eternity. Some people hear the gospel. They hear how to be saved. They understand that Christianity is the right way. Maybe they still have questions, but they're like, yeah, but if I make a decision, it's going to be kind of embarrassing. So I'll just eat my bowl of stew and spend eternity without Christ. It doesn't make any sense. But that's what your flesh will tell you. Oh, well, just put off that decision. Give your life to Christ later. Have fun now. You don't have to do all that. Just, just live for the moment. You, know, you believe what you believe. Don't worry about all that stuff. Don't sacrifice your eternity on the altar of the immediate. Mark 8.35 says, Jesus says it this way, For whoever would save his life, you want to hold on to it? You're going to lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospel, will save it. The only way you get to keep your life is to give it away.
You give your life to Christ because he gave his life for you. And it says, and then he asks a, a very riveting question. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Not just a bowl of stew, but what if you get the whole world, but you forfeit your own soul? And yet, we have people making that decision all the time. And you and I, if it wasn't for the grace of God, make that we, we, we put off the gospel. We didn't always get saved the first time we heard it. John 3.16. Would you read this with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Simple, simple verse. God did not make it complicated. Christ died on the cross for all your sins. He asks that you trust in him, that you give your life to him. And if you will roll your life upon him, he'll give you eternal life. It's really that simple. I want to ask everybody, if you would, just in a moment of reverence, to bow your heads, to close your eyes, and don't think about the pot of stew right now. Think about eternity. Think about forever. Think about where you will be. Do you really want to just live for today? Or do you want to live for what matters most? For what lasts forever? Think about Jesus. He is eternal life. Right now, in your heart of hearts, if you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can do it right now. There's all kinds of temptations and devil's going to whisper in your ear, don't, no, don't, don't, don't worry about it. Do that later. This is weird. Don't worry about it. No. You may not like me. You may not like our church or whatever, but Jesus, can you deny him? Can you look at him and say no? After all he's done for you with the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet, the crown of thorns on his head, how can we say no to this man? Father in heaven, thank you so much for this story. We all can identify with Esau. We, we can, every single one of us can point to a time where we just ate the stew and forgot about the things that matter most. But Father, when it comes to eternity, Lord, we don't want to miss that. So, Father, help us every day now also to, to make decisions that look toward eternity, that say no to the stew and think about the birthright, that we are the children of God and we have an inheritance that lasts forever. So, Father, I pray that we would realize there's people in the world that need to hear the gospel as well, and they're no different than we are, except they, we have heard and they have not. So, Lord, help us to be faithful in telling and inviting and doing whatever it takes to spread the good news. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You still have questions about the gospel. I'd love to hear from you. If you're watching online or you're here today, there's my cell phone number. Feel free to call me or text me anytime. I would love to have a discussion with you. Speaking of discussion, uh, Amanda, would you help me with the question and answer time? Okay. And I'm going to open up the first one for you there. So there's a number. Even if you're watching online, you can text that in. What are your thoughts on the shooting in Tennessee? Wow, yeah, sad. Extremely, extremely sad, and the news is not telling you the whole story. <laughs> the, this, for, let me just say, first of all, before I get into anything, and this is not political, this is just reality. Let me just say, we not only need to pray for the six families who lost loved ones, three teachers in their 60s, three nine-year-olds. One of the nine-year-olds was the pastor's daughter. I don't know if you've heard that yet. Um, 
We need to pray for them. We not just need to pray for the pray for the family of the shoot the family of the shooter. They're grieving too. And they're probably they may be even more confused. I don't know their spiritual situation, but if their child is any indication, they're probably in darkness and they need to know that this is that Christ loved them and that Christians love them. Um it's it the the shooter wrote a manifesto which if it was any other person, it would have been published by now, but it's not um, because they don't want to, they're trying to protect the LGBT transgender community because yesterday was Transgender Day of Vengeance. And so there's a lot of hostility towards Christians. Um, yesterday in, in, in Kentucky, transgender crowd stormed the, uh, the, 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 what, the Capitol building. Of course, not being covered in the news hardly at all because we don't want to make those people look bad. We can make Christians look bad all day long. If this had been totally flipped, if a Christian went in and shot six transgender people, oh my gosh, cars would be burned, cities' glass would be bashed, we would have the summer of 2020 all over again. But it's all being suppressed because it was the other way around. Even our president refuses to call it a hate crime. She, he, she, whatever, specifically targeted Christians and killed Christians. And in her manifesto, it's all about anti-Christian hate. But they refused to, refused to prosecute this as a, as a, a hate crime. So uh, minorities are protected, transgender communities are protected, LGBTs are protected, Christians, you're not protected. It's a double standard in our laws and in our, in our country. And that's the sad part about it. But the, the myth is there's Christians out there everywhere who ha hate transgender people or lesbians or gays or bisexuals. We don't. Is there anybody in here that's a Christian that hates those people? Is there anybody? If you're watching online, no hands are up right now. We actively love them. We've had them attend here. They've even admitted, yes, we're very loving and we're friendly. We do not hate them. Do we agree with their lifestyle? No. And I make this abundantly clear because we had someone visit our church a while back that came once, left, and would not come back because on that particular day I was, in, I was talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. I talked about homosexuality is a sin. They didn't agree with that. Okay? But I made it abundantly clear that we love homosexuals. We, many of us have them in our family, right? I don't, want, I don't need to raise hands, but we have homosexuals, bisexuals, transgender in our families. We're related to them. We do not hate them. If you hate them, you have a big problem. Okay? Let me just say, if you're someone who claims the name of Christ and you hate these people and you use derogatory terms or cuss words to describe them, you have a big problem and God is angry with you. Okay? So let me make that abundantly clear on the record on that. But we, we need to, the, the Constitution says we're all created equal in the eyes of God. But we're not being treated equally anymore. There's two sets of laws, one for people that are government officials or certain lifestyles, and then Christians, you're, it's free to persecute you, to fire you, to do whatever. And it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Let's just get ready for it. But hey, the Christians in, in first century Rome, they had it worse than we do. And the gospel exploded. So that's what I'm excited about. I want the gospel to explode as times get darker and get harder. When there are illustrations in the Bible that show the similarities between human stories and the divine, like the parallel between Abraham and God the Father, how do we know to stop? How do we know where to stop the comparison? Some people take things too far, suggesting that because Abraham had a son before and after Isaac, that there is a son of God besides Jesus, or that the sons of God referred to in Genesis and Job are offspring of God and other beings. 
also Rebecca was probably asking questions because if her children were fighting within her, Because if her children were fighting within her, it would have been potentially extremely painful. Even one kid, one kid kicking hard hurts. Maybe a parallel to when brothers and sisters in Christ fight and the church suffers? Um, that principle's there. Now, whether that story means that, I don't know. But yes, where do you draw the line on spiritual... There's something called spiritualizing, where you spiritualize everything in the Bible. In fact, some people believe none of this actually happened. They're just parables or um, to tell a story. And that's not true. This is a historical events. So, number one, you can, like, for example, in Galatians, Paul says this is an allegory. He tells us when to do it. Um, there's other times that typology is so clear that we have to see it, but we, again, we have to be cautionary on when, that, on when we do that. For example, the bio, Jesus said, as, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. And it talks about it as a prophecy. But nowhere in Jonah does Jonah say, the Messiah will be in the tomb. It's, it's, a, it's a prophecy by type. So we have to study the types carefully. And there's several times that the Bible uses the types for us. It'll say that Sarah is grace and, it, and Hagar is law. Galatians tells us that. So therefore, we can go with that parallel. So you go where Paul went, go where Jesus went. And then sometimes you're like, okay, this is pretty clear but you can't be dogmatic about it. You have to be really careful when you get into minutia, like, well, a child before, a child after, all that stuff. Um, that's when you'd be, like, stretching it. That's, and, and, and what did I do with the ten camels? I said, hey, this may be a stretch, but just go with me here and see why I think this. And you, then you're free to say, hey, no, nah, I think Gary's stretching it. Or sometimes it's abundantly clear. So that's the, hermeneutics is um, the art and science of biblical interpretation. It's an art because the more you do it, the better you get at it. It's a science because there are certain rules and laws that govern it. So it's one of those uh, strange fields of study. Considering the idea that physical weakness can make us say and do dumb things, do you think there are times in a marriage when arguments or anger can wait to be resolved until the next day? Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Yes, there's the answer, yes. Next question. I'm no, just kidding. Um, I'll give you a short answer. Um, Tammy and I have a, 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 an agreement. Sometimes we break it, but we don't talk about anything important after 10 o'clock. Anything like that could be controversial, bills or problems the kids are having. We just don't, we just shut it off. Because it, we're both tired, we need to get to sleep, and we're, one of us might make an emotional reaction, and, and it's just, it's just there's, not, there's no value in it. So, you know, know when, and that's, that's a consideration for the other person too. You don't want to go up to someone uh, when they've had a rough day. Like you don't go up to Patrick before the wedding and say, hey, Patrick, I have this problem. <laughs> you know, that, I, that's, just be considerate of the other person, what they're going through, especially if the other person is in a stressful situation. You know, hold off on that. Don't let your curiosity get the best of you. If God cannot be near sin or is omnipresent, how is he in contact with people that have a sin nature? Oh, that, that's a great question. Tammy and I were discussing that. That's not a question from Tammy, is it? We were discussing that this past week. Okay, so the Bible doesn't say God can't be near sin. Remember in Job, Satan came to God's presence and was asking questions? It says God cannot look upon sin. And the word look upon means to look upon favorably. God can't look at that and say, yeah, it's okay. He can't do that. 
Obviously, a holy God is indwelling sinful people. That's why the Holy Spirit is in you. So, God, in fact, what did David say? Where can I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. So God is omnipresent. It means God doesn't condone everything that's going on everywhere, but he is everywhere. That's what the language means. All right, let's stand and sing. We'll have to cut it off. Sure, no worries. Okay. Yeah.